Attention mining investors. Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil, surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000-ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil, led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources.com or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank our sponsors for the second hour for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors are Brazil Resources, Eurasian Minerals, Dynacor Gold Mines, Golden Arrow Resources Corporation, Miranda Gold, Paramount Gold and Silver Corp, Precipitate Gold, and Renaissance Gold. Well, I'm really pleased to have with me again, I believe for the third time, Dmitry Orloff. Dmitry was born and grew up in Leningrad, but has lived in the United States since the mid-70s. He was an eyewitness to the Soviet collapse over several extended visits to his Russian homeland between the late 80s and mid-90s. He is an engineer who has contributed to the fields as diverse as high-energy physics and Internet security, as well as a leading peak oil theorist. He is the author of Reinventing Collapse, The Soviet Example, and American Prospects. Welcome, Dimitri, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Great to be on your show, Jay. Thanks for having me back. Really good to have you back, and I failed to mention that you do have a new book coming out, uh, and that is The Five Stages of Collapse, and that is, uh, I, I think, what I want us to talk about most today. But uh, in your previous book that we talked to you about before, Reinventing Collapse, you talked about the the cycles. You talked a little bit about the topic of the book we want to talk to you today about, but but we also talked about the uh, the pattern of the collapse in your for, in the former Soviet Union. Uh, if you could possibly just summarize for our listeners, those that didn't hear previous interviews, what was behind the cause of the collapse of the Soviet Union? Well. Uh, I, I was probably the first to mention it, but now just about everybody else is jumping on the same bandwagon, mm-hmm. basically saying that the United States is following the, the course of, of the collapse of the USSR. Uh, I realized that pretty early on in, in 1996 or so, after uh, several extended visits back there, during which I observed the, the aftermath of the Soviet collapse, but what really caused it was... Uh, Energy supply shortages, uh, the Soviet Union, the oil production there peaked 
uh, two or three years before it collapsed, and that caused a a phenomenal amount of economic and financial dislocation. Um, Interestingly, uh, conventional oil production in the world peaked, peaked in 2005, which is, again, three years before the financial collapse of 2008. So there's a very strong parallel there. Um, another uh, very strong parallel is militarism and uh, a messianic um, drive to, to install uh, pliable, obedient democracies around the world. Mm. The Soviet Union was trying to do that with, with, with respect to many places around the world. Um, and the United States took over the mantle after the, the USSR collapsed and became um, possessed by the strange neo, neoconservative messianic zeal. Um, the, there was a string of uh, orange revolutions and, and there were invasions of several countries and mm-hmm. uh, attempts to install democracies there, all of them failures, every single one. The last orange revolution right now has finally run its course in the former Soviet Georgia where the, uh, the hand-picked president of the country, Michael Saakashvili, is now becoming a persona non grata in his own country. Um, and all of the other orange revolutions are likewise a complete mess. Um, and um, another parallel that is really worth making uh, is that the Soviet Union by the end was governed by this ridiculously corrupt, entrenched plutocratic elite, completely incapable of reform, not willing to accept that the times are changing, and that changes have to be made, and and they basically morphed into a criminal class after a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. And exactly the same thing is happening in the United States as we speak. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I have to ask you though, Dimitri. You know, since I think since we last talked, uh, since we last talked, maybe it's been a year and a half, two years ago. Uh, fracking has come into play in the United States. Now I know that you, you know, you, that energy and the cost of energy and peak oil is a very big part of your thesis. But to what extent, if any, can the fracking revolution delay the problems you're talking about in well, the United States? Well, I think that fracking is mainly just a way to siphon money out of the system. Mm-hmm. Um, there really is, is a great deal of desperation because, you know, there, we still have lots and lots of people who believe that, you know, there, there should be, um, you know, 7% yield on things even if the economy isn't growing. Mm-hmm. So they're getting desperate and they're willing to throw things at all sorts of uh, ventures and fracking is one of them. Uh, fracking is a way to generate uh, a sizable amount of, of natural gas for a short period of time at the cost of uh, a, a whole lot of environmental devastation. Mm-hmm. And, and the way they've gone about the whole thing is basically spend money on drilling. And, and um, uh, the, the resulting gas was sold at a loss. And the funny thing is that, you know, now they don't even have that much gas left to sell. They've, they've, pretty mu- they've vented a lot of it and they've, uh, they've pretty much just lost a lot of it. And the rest they sold at a loss. So it's pretty much run its course at this point, I would think, and I don't think that it's uh, it's going to uh, to be a very significant contribution overall. But the but the background to that, you know, the, the fracked wells they run there, they deplete very very fast. Mm-hmm. But the background to that is that conventional gas production is dropping like a rock, mm-hmm. and it's not coming back up. Mm-hmm. So once fracking is done, we're back to having a nightmare scenario as far as natural gas is concerned. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Another point I have to bring up uh, and I have to ask you about, because as one who hasn't lived in both countries, 
uh, I've been thoroughly indoctrinated in, by the propaganda of my country to believe that the Soviet Union would not have been a country that was trying to export democracy or create democracies, but if anything, uh, totalitarian governments overseas, totally dependent uh, on uh, on Moscow. Um, so, what do you? How do you answer that? Well, one person's totalitarianism is another person's democracy. It depends on, <laughs> you know, which how you twist that thing, and you know. Yeah. In the light, um, uh, the United States doesn't really export democracy. It installs pliant dictators or tries to around mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. The Soviet Union pretty much did the same. Mm-hmm. The sort of democracy that they both espouse is a, a supposedly representative democracy, but the representatives also tend to be handpicked and part of a, an elite. And and so this is not the sort of democracy that you might have in an old place like Iceland or like Switzerland or like the Isle of Man places mm-hmm. that have been democratic for a thousand years that very quickly revert to direct democracy mm-hmm. when their representatives turn out to no longer represent them. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting to know we had Dr. Peter Treadway on this show a few uh, two or three weeks back, and he was talking about the uh, the American Constitution didn't have the word democracy in it once. It was to, been, to have been a... Uh, a representative republic, and and of course uh, it was Wilson who said we have to make the world safe for democracy. That's when that first started coming in. That that's why we had to give up our lives in foreign wars was to make the world a better place for democracy. And so there was that propaganda. At the meantime, at the same time, of course, the so the um, uh, the Federal Reserve and uh, uh, some elite banking families started to gain a lot more uh, a lot more uh, influence probably in the in the process. But I would agree with you. I was only raising the question because as one indoctrinated in the United States, I certainly didn't believe that Soviets were going to care about democracy like we, good people here in the United States, would. But anyway, I, I, I totally agree with what you're saying on that point. Now, the Soviet collapse, how did the people manage to survive there? Because they have survived. And then I want to ask you, what is life like to the extent you can talk about it now in the Soviet Union years after the collapse? Well, uh, starting from the end, Russia has uh, become a fairly conservative place uh, that is uh, really interested in uh, stability and economic growth, and and uh, the, it's getting a lot more prosperous mm-hmm. and 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 richer, mm-hmm. and and uh, so people are very interested in um, stability and economic development, uh, in improving governance. In that it was a lawless place during the 90s. It is no longer a lawless place, and now they're reeling in the last remnants of that lawlessness, which is all of the. Uh, you know the the money laundering and the foreign tax shelters and and free movement of capital that leads to a great deal of crime and corruption and and reeling in the gray economy that still exists there. So it's becoming a, a fairly tightly governed, very conservative, uh, uh, professionally run place that really isn't interested in any kind of ideology at all. Their ideology is all very practical. There's nothing like the neocons in the United States, which have you know dreams of world domination, mm-hmm. uh, nothing like that in Russia at all. Mm. Interesting. Go ahead, yeah. But what allowed uh, you know the former Soviet citizens to survive the transition was the fact that uh, the, the Soviet living arrangement, because mostly because of all, of all of its numerous flaws, was paradoxically resilient in the name of collapse. So socialized medicine continued to function uh, the the distribution scheme that was at you know at the heart of the, the entire agricultural system continued to function. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
people didn't own the roof over their heads. It was owned by the government, was provided to them free of charge, more or less, so there was no homelessness. And communal services continued to be provided because that was considered one of the one of the key government functions that, you know, what whoever was in charge was basically willing to do anything possible to perpetuate. And overall, there was a, a, a level of stability because it wasn't a market economy, a level of stability built into the living arrangement that uh, basically allowed it to function at some level, even as this, this new kind of free enterprise way of doing things took form. Mm-hmm. Now, in the United States, there's nothing like that. It's it's all, everybody here is just absolutely abjectly dependent on finance and commerce and and all of the functioning thereof. And other parts of the living arrangement, like the complete dependence on the private automobile, also mean, mean that once gasoline is no longer uh, accessible, people can't even get home. You know, the suburbia just basically disappears because you can't walk out of there. Mm-hmm. And and so the, compared to the, the post-Soviet living arrangement, the post-American living arrangement is uh, barely survivable for a great many people. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so, so what you're saying is you think that that we're not as well prepared for the ultimate collapse or the collapse that the Soviets, the Soviets certainly did suffer through a lot of, I mean, the people of the Soviet Union certainly did suffer through a lot of pain and, and difficulty, though, during that transition, didn't they? Yes, they did. Yes, there was a spike in mortality. A lot of people lost their way. There was a lost generation of uh, same thing as that's happening here now. Is You know, a lot of graduates couldn't find work. And mm-hmm. 10 years later, they were unemployable. And, and, uh, lost their way in the world, a lot of them. Um, so the social dislocation that happened there is similar to what's happening here now with the long-term unemployed and the people who can't find work after graduation, mm-hmm. etc. But uh, I think it's going to get worse here. It certainly did get worse there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'd like to talk to you then about the five stages of collapse. And uh, if you could just perhaps, if we can run through them and then tell us where you think that we are now in the United States, for example. Um, I just before we get to that, I was just reading some um, somebody, a fund manager out of Switzerland, who is uh, very looking at the Western world. In fact, the, I think the Europe, Europe as well as, <clears throat> as the United States. I don't think he would include the BRIC countries at, by any means. But uh, and he's really worried, given you know what's going on in Cyprus and the the, uh, the likelihood that it's going to spread. In his view that we could be staring at something much more serious than what you were talking about in the Soviet Union. His, his fear is that we could be looking at some sort of a major cycle, like a 300-year cycle, a dark age, or even a 2,000-year cycle. Do you see anything that cataclysmic on the horizon for the Western world? Yes, I see the end of industrial civilization rapidly approaching. Wow. Um, and it's going to be a global phenomenon. But uh, it'll hit different countries at different times. For instance, Russia has 70 years of natural gas left at current rate of consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, the United States does not. Hmm. Um, so there are big differences like that. And, and natural gas is a landlocked commodity in spite of the uh, liquefied natural gas trade. But that's really a boutique trade um, mm-hmm. in terms of volume. So there, there are big differences like that. But overall, the period of rapid economic growth and population growth uh, it's over. It's done. It's never going to come back. So this is not a cycle. This is a pulse because this planet had a certain endowment of fossil fuels and we've burned through half of it already or a little more than half of it. 
and the rest of it is really dregs. It's not, it's not going to be uh, energy effective to get the rest of it out. You can't sustain an economy on what's left. So that's what we're looking at is the end of this, this pulse of uh, human development on Earth. An industrial civilization as we've known it. Um, okay, so let's, let's talk a little bit about the five stages. Stage one, the financial collapse. Uh, where are we, is that where we are now in the United States? And perhaps you can compare what we, what we're going through in each case with what the Soviet Union went through. Well, I came up with the five stages in uh, February of 2008, just as financial collapse became an actual term that people would use to describe what's happening. And, and the stages that I defined are financial collapse, a commercial collapse, political collapse, social collapse, and cultural collapse. And so financial collapse, these are all predicated on various uh, uh, levels of, of faith in the, in the status quo that are mm-hmm. breached at various times. So financial collapse occurs when um, risk cannot be estimated or controlled because uh, – the, the faith in the future goes missing. People no longer think that the future will resemble the past, and therefore the bets that they've made uh, are, are not going to, to, to pay off. Mm-hmm. Um, commercial collapse is when people lose faith in, in the free market system, the, the idea that you can actually use your money to buy what you need mm-hmm. to live. Um, and that hasn't really happened to a great deal yet except in places that have really actually collapsed, like Greece, where mm-hmm. you can't buy the drugs you need to live in the pharmacy because the country no longer imports them, because mm-hmm. the country is out of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and political collapse, we've, we've again, we've seen hints of it already in places like Greece and in Italy, where elected representatives are being replaced with political appointees vetted by the country's creditors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But... As it runs its course, government loses all legitimacy and all power because the tax base shrinks, because commercial collapse causes uh, incomes to, to dwindle to next to nothing. And commercial collapse is caused by financial collapse because the banks can no longer lend, so imports dry up because nobody can grant or honor letters of credit. Mm-hmm. You know, very simple mechanisms suddenly fail to materialize. So once this, those first three stages run run their course, then the fallback is basically something very local, the, the local society as it exists, which can perpetuate itself through through charity or, or through various informal barter and gift-based arrangements, maybe a little bit of trade based on some trade goods that are left over, but nobody really has any money or money that's worth anything. They might have bundles of worthless cash, um, but people somehow have to deal with each other one-on-one because their transactions are no longer mediated by the government or by the market or by financial financial institutions. They have to make it up as they go along. And if that fails, then uh, the the final point is uh, how families hold together, how very small groups of people function. And Mm -hmm. if they don't function, then that is cultural collapse. And at that point, humans stop resembling humans. And I've actually studied some tribes that went through all five stages, mm-hmm. and in my book I detail what that looks like, and it's not pretty. Mm-hmm. So, how far did the Soviet Union go in this uh, these stages? They didn't get to stage five. Oh no! It uh, the, there stage, was stage three at least. It it went to stage three, and 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 then it bounced back. 
so basically, um, I, I would say that you know financial collapse kind of ran its course by by the late nineties. There was a default in Russia, mm-hmm. but but then uh, what came afterward was was actually better and more stable. Uh, commercial collapse, well, uh, that sorted it, itself out in a very messy way through uh, mafia-dominated markets uh, during the 1990s, the lawless 90s. Mm-hmm. And, and it's certainly not a good way to introduce a, a free market system. Uh, nobody in their right mind would propose something like that ever again, even even though at the beginning of it, Western economists were all in favor of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I hope that they've learned their lesson. I don't know if they're capable of learning anything, but if they are, they, they should have learned their lesson from that. And as far as political collapse, well, the Yeltsin government was very weak, uh, but then when Putin came back, he very quickly put his house in order. And the, the Russian state bounced back with, with a great deal of vigor since then. And, and Russia is on its way to becoming a law-abiding society. Interesting. Uh, so do you think that we might be poised for something further down the chain, I mean, beyond stage three? I mean, if, if, I, if I hear what you're saying, the end of the industrial age uh, would suggest that maybe the Soviets have gotten off fairly uh, fairly easily then. Well, uh, the, the really troublesome thing is that in the United States, uh, social and cultural collapse have already, to a large extent, run their course. Mm-hmm. So... One indicator is, for instance, the majority of children in the United States is born out of wedlock mm-hmm. because families here are that weak. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, families, as in, you know, nuclear families are basically um, a luxury that some people can afford and other, others cannot. And as far as extended families, at this point, uh, functioning, functioning extended families, which actually you know, where a lot of economic activity happens within the family yeah. is a real rarity confined to certain ethnic groups such as the Koreans, the Vietnamese, uh, some Hispanics, people have, who come from traditional cultures. Mm-hmm. So it's becoming an extreme rarity. But that is really the the, uh, the bedrock, the foundation of a healthy society is an extended family where most economic relationships are within the family itself. Things like Childcare are not outsourced outside the family. Yes, yes. And what you're saying is that uh, that, and I agree with you that it's largely gone to a great extent. Although I would say that in the Midwest, from where I come from, some of the more conservative areas there still are extended families, though it's they're becoming more rare. But are you saying it, that in the Soviet Union, you never really had that much of a problem with the uh, with the demise of the families and the extended families? Well, in Russia, the typical living arrangement was three generations under one roof. Hmm. Wow. That certainly is more economic, isn't it? It may not be the most pleasant uh, environment, but it's the most, it, it would be more economic. Yes. Uh, well, see, the other thing is that Russia is really a historical country with a, you know, a somewhat uh, painful, but, but nevertheless, uh, a shared historical experience that binds people together mm-hmm. um, and makes people uh, very strongly attached to a certain vision of themselves that nobody controls. Not, mm-hmm. not the government, nobody. It's, mm-hmm. it's really just very ingrained in, in the way people think. Mm-hmm. Whereas the United States is not cohesive on an ethnic level or a cultural level. Correct. And being an American is a question of buying into a business plan. Oh. Okay, so what happens if that business plan fails? Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. still have a country? Yeah. Good point. So, as I understand it, um, Dimitri, that 
these stages might not necessarily come in order. If I'm hearing you right, stage four, the social collapse, is already to a great extent having is is in process in the United States. We haven't seen a real political collapse yet, although arguably it's it's very close. You know, you see the the Republicans and Democrats fighting tooth and nail over issues of ideology and uh so I guess there's there's that. It hasn't the system hasn't really collapsed yet though, has it? Oh you know? no. Well see political collapse is is a, a funny animal because politicians more than anyone else uh, have the ability to pretend that mm-hmm. things are okay mm-hmm. for a really long time. So what you what you actually have to watch is the point in time when they can no longer spend money. Mm-hmm. When that, that fails, that that's the that's the key ingredient that tells you that it doesn't matter whether they're still running their mouths in front of the camera. Right. Well, but they won't have the ability to run their mouths in front of the camera when they run out of money even. Uh, so we're, so I guess here's the issue. The U.S. is able still to print money and use it to a great extent around the world as a, uh, as a, as a world's reserve currency. How long do you think that's going to go on? Well, with all of these things, nobody knows how long they go on, but mm-hmm. the only thing uh, that's known is that it's it's a confidence game. Yeah. Uh, and it, when it fails, it fails overnight. It fails instantaneously. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that is uh, uh, indicative that we may not be very far from it failing is that, you know, this, this new way of bailing out banks by not insuring deposits mm-hmm. is a very interesting plan. So, okay, so you used to be able to uh, do cash transactions. Now, no, those have been outlawed. In most places, uh, then you used to put money in a bank and it was, it would be insured up to a certain number. Well, now it's not so much insurance. It's like you, you get this worthless bank stock, right? Mm-hmm. And that's after the hedge funds get paid off. Yeah, yep. And they, because yeah. The, they come first in a bankruptcy, sure. the hedge funds get paid, paid off first. I don't know who came up with that wonderful scheme. Yeah. But, but now putting your money in a bank is, is, is a good way of losing it because it's just unsecured debt. Uh, you're just lending money to an insolvent institution. Um, okay, so what's left? You know, what's what? What does money mean if you can't keep it in cash and you can't keep it in a bank? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What does it mean? Nobody knows. Okay, so nobody wants to think about it. But the moment they do, they suddenly realize that, well, we need to kind of redefine what money is. You know, we and and I talk about that in my book a lot. I spent a long time thinking about it, and it's. It's interesting that Cyprus came along just as my book is going to press mm-hmm, because, mm-hmm. you know, I wrote about that exact thing is what do you do when money becomes onerous, unreliable and borderline impossible to work with? Mm-hmm. How, how do you still keep an economy going? And there are ways, but they're very different from what we're used to. All right. Can you offer a couple of ideas there in that regard? Yes. It all has to be based on personal trading relationships and personal trust mm-hmm. and and. It's, a, it's not a question of numbers on a piece of paper. It's mm-hmm. not a question of piles of gold bullion either. Mm-hmm. It's a question of pledging valuable assets mm-hmm. to a common trading scheme. Mm-hmm. And that can only be done by small groups of people who know each other. So the first thing that goes when, when the financial institutions go is trust. Right. Nobody wants to deal with each other because of counterparty risk. Right. Suddenly, nobody wants to deal with strangers. But the problem is, a lot of people, the only people they know are really just strangers. You know, they're, they're all used to competing with each other. Not, they're not used to cooperating and trusting each other. So the first thing that people have to understand is that 
you know, job one is building personal trust. Yeah. Well, that, that certainly makes a lot of sense. And I guess this is part of the collapse issue, though, is that uh, the decentralization of government, the breaking down of society into smaller units, going back to a family type of a situation for survival. Is that what you see happening? Yes. Well, the, the standard pattern, you know, is, is uh, family as a macrocosm uh, or society as a macrocosm of family. So mm-hmm. you have you have extended families, and you know they're, they're governed by or self-governed by by elders. And mm-hmm. then uh, one level up, you have a council of elders, and then maybe you have um, some sort of a, a, a royalty, an honorary royalty. But that's like a, a a super father. You know, you have your father, and then you have a sort of father of the entire group of the entire tribe. So on some level. This is, this has been really like genetically engineered into us over mm-hmm. eons. Mm-hmm. Is you know that's that's where monarchy comes from. It, monarchy is family at a slightly higher level, mm-hmm. but it's supposed to work on a fairly low level. We're not supposed to have gigantic monarchies like the Russian Empire and like the British Empire and like the uh, Anglo-American Empire now, which is uh, obviously so far detached and and the inefficiencies of. Uh, the economic inefficiencies, it seems to me, are very, very great. And I know when we talked the last time, your feeling was that we are inevitably heading back for decentralization as things break down and uh, local governments. I guess that's the direction you see the U.S. taking, no doubt, as things uh, sort of unfold here. Yes, well, if, if you look at uh, at the United States, it's, it's really a country that is – uh, dependent on the interstate highway system and a flood of diesel that keeps it running. And that's going to dwindle. And the maintenance costs of the, the interstate highway system are going to become onerous. Already there are lots of bridges that are in disrepair and no, no money to fix them. And then beyond that, the country is really bound together by uh, the railroads, which have been completely ignored for several generations now. Again, there's no money to bring them back. Uh, and the Panama Canal. Mm-hmm. And, and if you knock all those three things out, then you're left with two coasts and then a sort of uh, big parched desert-like area that's spreading in the middle where they used to grow food, but now they can't. So that's what the U.S. in the future looks like is two coasts and a gigantic wasteland in the middle. Something like in geological times, it was a, uh, a vast ocean of uh, very shallow ocean, I think, and uh, if I remember my geological history. But uh, maybe that's what we're destined for. But you know, Dimitri, your book, and I want to tell our listeners again, the five stages of collapse. Uh, people need to go to Club Orloff, C L U B O R L O V. Uh, for uh, for Dimitri's, uh, well, it's his blog, and also to buy his various products. But the five stages of collapse is a new book. It's coming out. How soon will it be? Uh, but it's in May next, uh, just about a month away. Is that right, Dimitri? Yes, we we had the initial off press date May first, and it actually might get uh, moved to some sometime in April because it's being printed right now. Okay, and people can go in there and order this book now, and then I guess it, have it mailed to you, or is it available electronically as well? It will be available electronically eventually, probably mm-hmm. sometime in June. The paper version will actually come first this time around, interestingly mm-hmm. enough. Mm-hmm. And yes, if you order it, I will mail it. And the the interesting, the important thing to point out here, Dimitri, is you've you've talked. You know, we're talking about some very sobering ideas. 
that I think are very much in touch with reality, and we see it unfolding, and if anything, it's more real now than it was when I first talked to you. But what I'd like to get across to my listeners also is that the five stages of collapse have some ideas in it about how you can uh, survive and how you can, uh, you know, maybe in some ways live a richer life, a more meaningful life. We had uh, recently... Uh, uh, Chris Martinson on our show, hoping to have him back again. He's written a book called The Crash Course, and he's talked about how downsizing and moving uh, and not living so extravagantly but living uh, more simply uh, has enriched his life and uh, his relationship with other people. I guess that's probably a theme you would agree with. Absolutely. What I try to do in this book is present not only just a general information on a number of collapse-related topics but also present case studies. Each, st- each stage of collapse is uh, accompanied by a comprehensive case study of a society that is either immune to that stage of collapse or survived that stage of collapse to, to show how that's done. So there, there are very specific adaptations that I present, uh, and there's nothing better than an actual example to guide you, and I present a lot of examples. Well, thank you very much. We are out of time, Dimitri. Thank you very much for coming on the show again. It is really, I think, a very necessary topic. Uh, people should do themselves and their families a favor uh, by following Dimitri's work and ordering the five stages of collapse. Thank you very much, Dimitri, for being with us. Thank you, Jay. Folks, don't, likewise, we'll have you again sometime soon, I hope. Uh, folks, don't go away. I'll be right back after the commercial break with Gene Epstein, who will talk about this coming week's New York City Junto. Don't go away. I'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Goldmines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Windfall profits happen frequently in gold exploration stocks, but the risk of losses are also common. Miranda Gold enhances prospects of shareholder gains by combining the intellectual capital of geologists, mine finders Ken Cunningham and Joe Herbert with other people's hard dollars in search for elephant-sized gold deposits in politically safe places like Nevada and Columbia. That keeps shareholder dilution to a minimum, so when discoveries are made, major gains are possible. For more, go to MirandaGold.com. Precipitate Gold is focused on exploring and developing its gold properties in the Dominican Republic in Mexico. Precipitate's management team has been responsible for numerous takeovers, with valuations exceeding $280 million. With a successful team and a growing portfolio of quality gold assets, including an attractive concession adjacent to GoldQuest's holdings in the Dominican Republic, the company is well-positioned for growth in 2013. For more information, please visit www.precipitategold.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. 
you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am pleased to have with me Gene Epstein, who writes the Economic Beat column for Barron's and who also contributes various other articles in Barron's, including the Balancing the Books column, which provides an excellent book review. And I believe that's uh, almost every week I pick that up at Barron's. It's very, very interesting. Uh, Gene also leads the New York City Junto meeting uh, that's held on the first Thursday of every week at the General Society Library. That's at 20 West 44th Street between 5th and 6th Avenues near Grand Central Station here in New York City. Well, welcome back once again, Gene, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. It's always a pleasure, Jay. Uh, I I have to uh, correct you on two uh, small facts. I wish I were as productive as you just implied. Uh, the Balancing the Books uh, feature, which I uh, edit, I acquire the books, I appoint the reviewers. Mostly I don't write the reviews. That appears uh, the first issue of each month in Balance. And the Junto, as well, is the first Thursday of each month. Uh, but uh, it's often enough, certainly, to uh, to involve my time and my commitment. Well, it's certainly... And, uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that this, uh, the first Thursday of the month, which is a good way for people to remember it and for gentle members to go. And in fact, I've, I've also, uh, had a, a non-compete agreement, uh, with the Reason people from Reason, uh, uh, magazine who run their own, uh, uh, lectures, uh, every month. And, uh, they, uh, they've agreed never to have theirs on the first Thursday of the month. They once did and now they don't. So that there are two libertarian events that people can go to in New York are, Ours on this coming Thursday is actually, and ironically, uh, going to be uh, Matt Welch, uh, the editor in chief of Reason Magazine, and his main and the main topic of his of his talk is going to be uh, the struggle for the soul of the Republican Party. And uh, I think a few people who've been reading about uh, what Rand Paul has been up to, the son of Ron Paul, mm-hmm. will uh, get an inkling about what uh, Matt is going to talk about. Mm, uh, the struggle within the Republican Party to uh, to wrest it back to the true old-line conservatives, the libertarians who are non-interventionists, the Ron Paul types. And it's very, been very heartening that Rand Paul is in a way and even more successfully potentially uh, carrying the torch that his father Ron Paul uh, carried for so long. Well, that's very interesting, and I was just listening to uh, David Stockman, actually, yesterday on on Bloomberg, talked to Tom Keene, and was saying exactly that, that the Republican Party has run amok and uh, needs to get back on, on track in terms of its limited government uh, views. Well, Gene, I want to mm-hmm. talk Stockman's to you today. Very, I want to just say, by yeah. the way, since you mentioned Stockman, uh, I'm, I'm, I've already booked David Stockman for the first Thursday in October. Oh, fabulous. Uh, to speak. You know, as you know, he's come out uh, with a, an enormous book, uh, a, a, a discussion that goes back to the Reagan era, back to the Nixon era of the U.S. economy, and I'm going to have that, uh, I'm going to have that reviewed in Barron's as well. Uh, Stockman uh, certainly uh, does Deserves the attention he's been getting, and I'm going to be giving him a lot of attention over the next few months. Oh, he, sure. mo- he most certainly does, and we actually yeah. aired a, a speech he gave at the Mises Institute 
mm-hmm. the Mises Circle event here num- a number of months back, and uh, David mm-hmm. is certainly uh, sounding the alarm bells uh, for the the budget and the problems that we're facing now, and that's what you addressed, actually, in the, your last mm-hmm. column at, uh, on Barron's. Uh, you talked about let's get radical with the budget. Um, Gene, what, in your view, you and I are pretty much, I'm sure, on the same page. We're libertarians. We believe government should have a limited role. But what do you think government should do? What is, is, is what should its role be in our lives? Well, you know, the first thing uh, that uh, I guess any of us libertarians have to say is that the the anarchists, the anarcho-capitalists, uh, like uh, David Friedman, who uh, is... Uh, Coincidentally, perhaps, but interestingly, uh, the son of Milton Friedman, David Friedman, is mm-hmm. an anarcho-capitalist, unlike his father, mm-hmm. um, Milton Friedman certainly not, uh, or uh, Murray Rothbard, another anarcho-capitalist, is that uh, really, uh, potentially, uh, the market can do everything the state can do, everything government can do, and do it better, and that, uh, that and that we uh, we who believe in in limited government are to some degree fooling ourselves, because while the founding fathers Thought they put in place limited government. Once you once you create it, it, it metastasizes. It runs amok. And indeed, of course, as as has been said many times, the founding fathers would be spinning in their graves if they knew what happened uh, to the government that they tried to institute under the Constitution. But with that said, uh, while uh, I uh, I always feel that I'm under the gaze and possibly the critical gaze of of the anarchists, I would say, of course, that the that the Conception of the founding fathers was originally uh, protecting people against force and fraud. The night watchman state. Um, they didn't want a standing army. They wanted militias to protect us against invasion. They did want uh, sheriffs and police to protect us against force and fraud. They did want courts uh, to do so. They were hoping for checks and balances to make sure that government didn't get uh, too powerful. But essentially, of course, it's that uh, that government. Uh, does those things? Uh, the next question is: Does it really? Is it really better at at, at collecting our garbage? Um, I, uh, I I would tend to agree that probably it isn't, but uh, you know we allow it that. Basic functions of municipal government and uh, the basic night watchman state functions of the federal, state, and local governments are at least permissible by those of us who believe in limited government. Uh, but and clearly, government is going to perform those tasks far better um, if it doesn't do a whole lot of other things. Um, the, the other things, of course, that it does are the two, two other things, uh, is a redistributed income uh, potentially, or at least arguably, redistributed income uh, to uh, those um, who have difficulty earning enough in the marketplace to conform to a certain standard of living that we would all like to see people conform to. Now, the, here, of course, libertarians are somewhat divided. Uh, Milton Friedman wanted uh, all welfare programs, all transfer programs uh, to be collapsed into a negative income tax where uh, you simply file your income tax and um, if you're below a certain threshold, to the extent that you're below a certain threshold, on a graduated basis, you would get income from the uh, from the IRS, more or less the way people get refund checks from the IRS. And uh, he, w- he wanted to replace Social Security and all um, aspects of government transfer payments with a simplified uh, negative income tax. The virtue of that uh, is that at least it specifies who we're targeting, and it means 
that all the transfer programs, including Social Security, Medicare, and others, um, are not going to from poor people to rich people. Mm. Presumably, that's not what progressives want. You know, as Friedman put it well with respect to Social Security, as he said uh, a few times, that if you take a uh, an income tax that forms a, forms on the first dollar that uh, that the average person earns, and then combine it with a, a pension plan that favors uh, the the richer people, mm-hmm. um, and then put those two things together that uh, progressives and Social Democrats probably wouldn't want, but uh, put them together and you call it Social Security and you have a sacred cow. So the point is uh, that with respect to transfer payments, at least those libertarians like Friedman who want, who do want some transfer payments, and obviously not all libertarians believe in that, and of course I myself and perhaps you as well recognize that the unfettered market could abolish poverty, uh, even poverty as we recognize it in this country, which of course is not poverty as the world recognizes. Mm-hmm. It, as, as immigrants to this country perceive what we call poverty, they perceive of it as, a, as untold affluence. Um, but, uh, I mean, most poor people own air conditioners and cars and microwaves. But that aside, if we do want some kind of uh, transfer payments, then something like a negative income tax um, would be appropriate. The third category is, of course, the big anathema, which is to the extent to which government gets involved in productive enterprise, mm. in allocating resources, in running essentially run and doing what the private sector does 50 times better. Presumably, hopefully, but amazingly not. We should have learned from the example of the Soviet Union, of any kind, any time government ownership and, and, and dominance of enterprise has ever been tried. It impoverishes us. It impoverishes the masses. The reason you and I support capitalism is not just that capitalism is essential to freedom, but we also support capitalism because it brings massive prosperity to all people, um, and only if uh, capitalism is allowed to operate. But we are still suffering under, under the delusion, in the case of medical care, the uh, the 100 and perhaps 50-year delusion that the government should run our medical care system, and that the private sector is not able to do so. So the point is that uh, even though I've made certain concessions, and even though the anarchist wing of the libertarians uh, would tell me I'm going in the wrong direction, the night watchman state, the state, the municipalities that run basic functions like uh, garbage collection and fire protection, uh, and then some transfer payments to those who are in need, targeted through the neg- negative income tax, if we only had those things, and if we said everything else is cut out, that aspect of all transfer payments that reps would go to rich people, to rich farmers, Farmers, um, to rich elderly uh, via Social Security or via Medicare, all of those things were abolished. And then on top of that, we said that government should get out of enterprise. It should not involve itself. It should not uh, bureaucratize the allocation of resources. We leave that to capitalism. Hopefully, that's a lesson that everyone should have learned, given the failure of, uh, of socialism uh, globally. Once we do that, then, uh, of course, we're talking about the government maybe collectively state, local, and federal level, instead of accounting for about 40% of GDP, it would probably be closer uh, to uh, 4 or 5% of GDP. Well, that certainly is radical. When you're, uh, it, that fits your, your uh, title of your article, Gene, for sure. Cutting back... Course, uh, it's not revolutionary. It's not well, revolutionary. It is, <laughs> it's even conservative. But go ahead. For a libertarian, it's conservative. The, the, uh, the, found, the founding fathers uh, would not be rolling over in their grave if they heard you say that. They would be, they would be uh, overjoyed. But 
Certainly yeah, that David, was their conception. Sure. David Stockman's idea and yours, I think David mm-hmm. was talking uh, yesterday uh, with Tom Keene and, and definitely was, was saying much the same thing. But this is not going to happen, Gene. This is not going to no. happen unless we have a breakdown in the system. We've only got uh, maybe a minute or two left. Okay. Uh, so how, how I want to argue with you about that. You know, how, how it's not we, going to happen. It's not going well, to happen. We never know whether, we know, we never know when radical change happens. In 1986, as I told you, the Berlin Wall is going to fall, the Soviet Union is going to unravel, it's going to all happen in 48 months. I'm sure we both have said, would have said, that sounds yes. great, but it ain't going to happen. Well, it did happen. <laughs> well, you're right, Gene. That's, that's, uh, I, I guess you are the eternal optimist. Uh, R- radical change rarely happens. Uh, we just have to be ready. That's something that Friedman said. We have to have the good ideas, the good radical ideas lying around, because we never and know when it can happen and and be ready for the day that our opportunity uh, arises i guess which Precisely. is uh, which though gene given the problems that we're seeing that we're you and i are talking about this huge budget problem international problems in the monetary system that we see surfacing again in cyprus and, and elsewhere yet you come out on march 11th with an article uh the odds favor the bulls in the equity markets uh yeah. in the next minute or so tell us why you are bullish on the stock market is this just another bubble bull or what well, very mildly bullish, very mildly bullish on the stock market, uh, and uh, and it's because I, I, I while I concede all the things that you've said, obviously about problems around the world, uh, that uh, uh, the ways in which government impinges uh, on markets. Uh, the uh, I base that on uh, the research that I helped massage, done uh, mainly by uh, Professor Jeremy Siegel of uh, Wharton, uh, based on the 140-year record of the stock market. And the, and, uh, the point I would make uh, to your listeners especially is that so many of the things we're talking about uh, had their analog at every period of the last 140 years, um, that the, the, pro- the, the incredible progress of the stock market over the 140-year over the period that, he's, that he uh, has, has researched, um, that's starting in 1871, has happened despite all of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, that had those things not operated, probably stock market returns would have been double what they are. I believe that the U.S. economy has the potential to grow about 7% a year, and, and that means double in, in output every uh, every 10 years. Um, it doesn't do that, of course, obviously, because of the depredations of government. The stock market doesn't perform very well because of the depredations of government, but we still have entrepreneurs, we still have innovation, we still have market forces that tend to achieve a few things and have achieved incredible returns in the stock, incredible at least by by most standards, uh, in the stock market over the last 140 years. And all of that research indicated is that that when you, you have regression toward the, progression toward the mean in this particular case, mm-hmm. that when the stock market performs below par, below its normal 6% rate of return on an inflation-adjusted basis, there tends to be a rebound over the next few years. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, if it's going to make that 6% average, it has to have an upside correction. So all I would say to people is that, in a way, if you've lived long enough, you know that the problems uh, are, are caused by government and caused by the governments of the world are nothing new. Uh, oh. 
the stock market still has some resiliency to it. It still tends to make progress. And that's, in a way, all I was saying about being bullish on the market. Talking about well, Dow 15,000, which isn't very ambitious, but that's well, higher than where we are now. Well, thank you, Gene. We are out of time, unfortunately, but it's good to know uh, your optimism both uh, for a revolution and, uh, and for a mildly higher stock market. We do need some optimism on this show from time to time. God knows that. So thank you very much. I'm really happy to provide it. Really look forward to uh, seeing you and your and your main guest uh, Matt Welch at the upcoming uh, Junto, and that's at uh, the General Society Library, 20 West 44th Street. Thanks, it's free. Thanks to the generosity of Victor Niederhofer, uh, who is uh, always there as well. And so, folks, please come out and see. Uh, come out, it's free, and uh, and meet Gene, meet myself, uh, Victor Niederhofer, and of course Matt Welch, uh, the main speaker. I will be right back after the commercial break with uh, a summary of this week's show as well as uh, a word about next week's guest. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. Gold and Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. Paramount Gold is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce advanced-stage gold and silver projects in the mining-friendly jurisdictions of Nevada and northern Mexico. Backed by a strategic investor and a strong balance sheet, an experienced management team has completed preliminary economic assessments on both projects, showing robust economics and immense potential for increasing ounces and mine life. For more information, go to ParamountGold.com or follow on Twitter, PZG News. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I just want to give a, a little bit of a summary of today's show. Uh, I think uh, Jim Sinclair's discussion that he came out with yesterday, and again today I was reading uh, a little while ago, uh, fits very well with Ellen uh, with uh, Ellen's points, Ellen Brown's points earlier today about bail-ins, and, and uh, essentially uh, uh, Sinclair is saying, uh, is confirming what Ellen said, essentially what the propaganda artists are trying to get us to do is to accept bail-ins as being a valid way of bailing out 
these banking uh, uh, corporations, at the same time getting us to believe that it won't happen to us. Uh, and so they, of course, cannot allow us to be fearful because we'll pull our monies out of the banking system and that will uh, then lead to the uh, to, to the certain collapse of those banking institutions. David Stockman yesterday, again, I think was uh, on CNBC, was talking about how Bernanke is in fact in the process of destroying capitalism from the inside out. By keeping interest rates at zero, he's wiping out equity. And this is the destruction of capitalism that is most certainly uh, gaining a head of steam right now. It's, it's very sad because it's going to be in mass poverty in my view uh, and people are just simply not uh, are not ready for it. What we try to do on this show is to help people realize what the real story is underneath the propaganda that we're given from the mainstream media day in and day out. I think Dmitry Orlov's insights as to the five stages of collapse and certainly his view as well as Chris Martinson's view that we had on last week, and by the way, Chris will be with us again next week, also fits very well Ellen's uh, thesis uh, as to uh, well, Ellen is is really uh, explaining how and the mechanics of how the banking system is crumbling and how it's falling apart. Uh, Dimitri uh, and Chris Martinson see the bigger picture in terms of uh, the uh, the whole energy uh, environmental complex and how the exponential growth in demand against our ecosystem is not possible. Um, of course, there will be some debate and probably some other people on, that listen to this show that won't be in perfect agreement with that. But certainly, there is agreement that the banking system is in big is in big trouble, and the uh, the U.S. economy is also uh, sucking wind, to put it politely. Um, I think that we do want to be thankful, though, that there is a bit of good news. Gene Epstein is suggesting that we'll see a rise uh, in the equity markets. Today was a big day in the up day in the equity markets, and this uh, uh, Ellen uh, certainly would would agree. Ellen Brown would definitely agree with that uh, because. Well, I don't know if she'd agree that the equity markets are going up, but she thinks that having your money in equities and gold and silver and that sort of thing is certainly better than having it in a bank deposit uh, when that uh, when that day comes when they decide they have to take those uh, deposits away from us or portions of them. Uh, certainly also, I think on a, the brightest note of today was Dynacor. Dynacor Gold Mines is doing extremely well. It's growing its earnings very, very nicely. Uh, and uh, I'm very happy to own that stock, even though it went down 10% today. I think it's a great buying opportunity. I think it's going to be a great buying opportunity in the gold share markets, and I'm saying that at a time when it's not the easiest thing to say. When we take a licking like we did today, it's very difficult to go in and buy those kinds of things. Uh, that is for sure. Um, you know, interestingly enough, I heard Mark Faber on CNBC earlier today, and they were asking Mark whether he thought that American depositors might be forced to take a 30 to 60% haircut in their deposits. And Mark said, yeah, if you're lucky, uh, if you're lucky, you'll manage to stay alive. Uh, and then he noted that, well, some people believe that maybe the, the world after this one isn't all that bad anyway, uh, and sort of chuckled about that. But indeed, I think that may be the case that when times get really rough, as both Dimitri uh, and Chris uh, Martinson have pointed out, it brings people closer together and the real important values seem to come into play and people pay attention uh, to their neighbors and, and loving their families and taking care of each other, which is one of the reasons I believe Christianity thrives in countries where things are really difficult and why it has fallen on hard times in the West where things have been so good. Well, we've lived beyond our means and we're going to pay the piper very soon. Next week, we have Chris Martinson, as I mentioned, Suzanne Zetner, I think will be here uh, all in one preparedness. 
And also, uh, we are going to talk to David Gerwitz. He's the managing director of Charles Nanner Research, and they are calling for a Dow 5000. So certainly not an optimistic picture there. Well, that is all the time we have. I want to thank Casey Trump, my producer, Matt Widener, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening, making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.